and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. I'd like to um, open up by telling you a bit about a man named Louis Zamperini. Some of you may have heard of him. Some of you may have read this book, or um, some of you may have had the misfortune of seeing the movie that was made from the book. I say misfortune. I, I didn't see it. I refused to see it because the movie betrays the message of the book. And you'll understand that more as I talk a little bit about the book. It's a book that I had no idea, really, how great it was when I got it. I, I had no idea where it was ending up. In fact, had I known, I probably would have been more excited about some of it as I was reading it because it's a hard book to read in many ways. Not hard in that it's um, you know, words that I didn't understand or hard in that it's not well written. The reason why I did want to read it, it's by one of my favorite authors, Laura Hillenbrand, that also wrote Seabiscuit. And so I, I'd asked for it as a Christmas gift, and I started reading it not knowing where it was going. It begins by telling us about the life of this man, who we first are introduced to him as a small boy, and a very wild small boy. One of those kids who was just born wild and crazy. To give you an example, at the age of two, um, well, this isn't being wild and crazy, at the age of two he contracted pneumonia, which had an effect on him for quite some time. And it really had made such an impact that his doctor, his family doctor, recommended that his family move from New York, Brooklyn, um, to California where the climate would be easier for him to recover. And so they start to head to, to California. They're, they're departing on a train out of Grand Central Station. And little two-year-old Louie all of a sudden gets up and runs the length of the train to the caboose and jumps off the train as the train is pulling out of the station. And, you know, his family, of course, is, is freaked out. And they get him to, you know, the, the conductor to stop the train. And, and he's just like strolling down the track. And he's like, well, I knew you'd come and get me. <laughs> he was a kid who was always in trouble and just wild. Um, he, would, he would play all kinds of pranks, like climbing up into the church tower and attaching a piano wire from the bell over to a tree that he climbed, and then he just kept ringing it, and people were freaking out, like, why is this bell ringing on its own? Is this, you know, something going on here? Um, he learned how to, to as a, a young kid, like, break into people's houses, and he'd steal their food. He'd steal, like, their pies and their cakes and all these things. <laughs> And there's all these, you know, story after story about him that all end with, and then he ran like mad. And 
he did love to run, although he had been so weakened by that pneumonia that even his little sister could run faster than him initially. But as he got older, he, he kept on getting in trouble. He, he kept on getting in more and more trouble, and you know, it's very interesting reading, kind of amusing. But his brother Pete, who was three years older than him, at the point that they were ready to throw Louis out of school because he just kept on getting into so much trouble, um, he convinces the principal, although because of his bad grades and wild behavior, he wouldn't have been eligible to contend in sports, he convinces the principal that the reason why Louis is acting out so much is he just wants attention. And if he could get some favorable attention, that he'd quit misbehaving. And even though at the, initially at this point still, he's not at all a fast runner, he gets the coach to, to put his brother on the track team. And with that, he discovers, Louis discovers, both a love for running and an incredible innate ability to do it. He is so good, he quickly dominates not only all the high school competition, but while still in high school, begins to compete on a collegiate level and begins winning all of those competitions. And he is then in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, the same ones that the famous Olympi Olympian Jesse Owens contended in. If you're familiar with those Olympics, and or if you're aware of the history of the time, those are the Olympics that took place in Berlin in 1936. Who was in power? Hitler. Hitler. And of course, that's a very famous whole you know, scenario with Jesse Owens, the star black American athlete, dominating those games. Louis competed in those games. He ended up being part of a four-man relay. If everybody else in that relay had run as well as he did, they would have won the event. Um, his time was the best there, one of the best ever but the rest of his teammates weren't up to that level. His real e event was running the mile, but he didn't compete at that Olympics running the mile because if you, runners, whether they're people, whether they're two-legged or four-legged runners, there's a certain time, there's a certain age, there's a certain point in your training that you're at your peak, and he was still not to that place. He was still reaching it. Really, the goal, the target, was to compete in the Olympics four years later, 1940. And in between 1936 and 1940, he dominated all of the co competitions be besides the Olympics. He was slated to be the first person to break the four-minute mile. Now, you know, I don't, who knows the name of the guy that finally did? Well, see, it wasn't that important, I guess. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very famous thing because nobody thought, they, they literally thought that was impossible, physiologically impossible for somebody to do, that man could not run faster than a four-minute mile. And until somebody did it and then a bunch did it. That's the way believing goes. Mm -hmm. But he would have been the first. And he had trained. He had gotten it down to just a few seconds within that four-minute you know, mark. It was like four minutes and six seconds or something like that was his best time. 
And it was all said that he would have been the one in those Olympics to break that four-minute mile, but guess what happened? War. War. World War II. And those Olympics did not happen. Those Olympics did not happen. And he was very disappointed. Um, before the Olympics even came up, though, um, you know, he sort of knew it was going to be the case. And then right after that, America gets dragged into war, and he is drafted. And he ends up in the Air Force, um, which is ironic because although he was this wild, crazy kid, the one thing he was afraid of was flying. <laughs> and he ends up in the Air Force, I believed he was a bomber. And um, in, I think, I think it's the first mission, I don't remember, but the plane is shot down over the ocean. Now, as a rule, if you did not recover the crew of a plane that was shot down over the ocean within a matter of a few hours, you could just do the memorial service because they weren't found. People did not survive that. They did not survive being shot down over the middle of the ocean. And he saw, you know, most of that crew killed in one way or the other. Um, a few of them, there were four of them that ended up in two life rafts, but immediately after being shot down, a fighter plane strafed, is that the word? Strafed them and destroyed one of, the, one of those life rafts. So four guys try to cram into this life raft that's just made for two guys with enough supplies for two guys for a short period of time. That is a bad situation, isn't it? And the book goes on, and this is where I say it gets kind of hard reading when you like this, you know, the detail of this and how long they're there. They end up in that ocean, bobbing around in the ocean for 46 days. 46 days. With, you know, not enough water, not enough food, not enough room. And it's an ordeal. And by the end, only, I believe, two of them ever survived that ordeal. Um, you know, it was an ordeal physically. It was an ordeal mentally. One of the guys just loses his mind at some point in that ordeal. And, you know, if it wouldn't be bad enough to be in that scenario, the one day that they think, oh, a rescue plane. Guess what? It's a Japanese fighter who, again, strafes their life raft. So here they are in the middle of the ocean, and there is a school of sharks swimming around them. And they've got a choice. We can stay in the raft and be hit by the bullets from the Japanese fighter plane, or we can dive into the ocean and, you know, beaten by the sharks. Well, one was a good possibility, a good probability. The, one was, the other was a certainty, and that was that they would certainly be killed if they stayed in the raft. So they dived in, and then they'd climb back out as the plane passed over, and then he'd circle around, and they'd dive in and back and forth. Yeah. You know, he was literally at some point 
beating off, this sounds like, a, you know, come on. If you're watching this in a movie, you're saying, come on. But he's beating off these sharks that are trying to, like, jump onto the raft with, you know, their paddles. So, you know, at the point where kind of like they can't go another day on, that, on the 40th day, which I find interesting in terms of the significance, biblical significance of that number, on the 40th day, they spot land. And on the 46th day, they manage to get to an island. And guess who's there to greet them? Japanese. The Japanese army. So after surviving all that, pretty shortly, they wished they had not because they are then put into a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Um, Japanese prisoner of war camps were much, much worse than the German version of it. Not that you'd ever want to be in either one, but, you know, Hogan's Heroes, that might not have yet. Sergeant Schultz, and there's a couple of you old enough to get this. The Japanese were terrible. The Japanese prisoner of war camps were terrible. And he was moved from one to another, but they were starved. They, and the particular one he was in had a couple of different leaders, you know, guys in charge, commandants, whatever the equivalent of that would be in, in the Japanese. Um, but the second one was just literally a, a sadist. Literally a sadist. I mean, like he actually got off on torturing these guys. And he particularly targeted Louis. And he beat him mercilessly. They starved them. They did all this terrible, terrible stuff. And this just went on for years, for years. Uh, the plan, the Japanese plan, was when, when they realized that they probably were going to lose the war. When America began to have some, some planes going into, over the bombers going over the, um, you know, island Japan, they set in motion a plan to execute all the prisoners of war. And had it not been for dropping the atom bomb, they would have carried that out. Um, you know, and I know that's a tough one, but... And nonetheless, that is what, what ended up helping them. So he makes it back. He survives. He survives. And initially, he's you know, thrilled, and his family is thrilled that he's home. But it's not too long before they realize that you know, he's not OK. He's not OK. And this is where I'd like to read you some excerpts. <coughs> After he gets back, <clears throat> well, first to set a little bit of the stage. At the end of World War II, thousands of former prisoners of the Japanese, known as Pacific POWs, began their post-war lives. Physically, almost every one of them was ravaged. The average Army or Army Air Force's Pacific POW had lost 61 pounds in captivity, a remarkable statistic given that roughly three-quarters of the men had weighed just 159 pounds or less upon enlistment. Mm -hmm. Tuberculosis, malaria, dysentery, malnutrition, anemia, eye ailments, and festering wounds were widespread. 
At one chain of hospitals, doctors found a history of wet beriberi in 77% of POWs and dry beriberi in half. And he goes on to talk about neurological damage, respiratory diseases, crippled, disfigured by unset broken bones, ruined by beatings and years of chewing grit in their food, blind from malnutrition, and it just goes on to, to talk about how terrible this stuff was. Um, in nine, <clears throat> and in a 1987 study, eight in 10 former Pacific POWs had psychiatric impairment, six in 10 had anxiety disorders, more than one in four had PTSD, and nearly one in five was depressed. 30% uh, uh, there was only uh, they committed suicide at a rate of thirty percent more than others. So it goes on to talk about just how bad everybody was that came back from that situation. About Louis himself, Louis was wrecked. Okay, so he comes back and he initially tries to train again to be able to compete but because of how the punishment that his body had taken from the broken bones, the beatings, and all that, he's not able to. Louis was wrecked. The quest that had saved him as a kid was lost to him. The last barricade within him fell. By day, he couldn't stop thinking about the bird. That was the nickname of that leader of the POW camp that tortured him. By night, the sergeant lashed him, Hungry and feral, as the belt whipped him, Louis would fight his way to his attacker's throat and close his hands upon it. No matter how hard he squeezed, those eyes still danced at him. Louis regularly woke screaming and soaked in sweat. He was afraid to sleep. He started smoking again. There seemed no reason not to drink, so each evening he swigged wine as he cooked, leaving Cynthia, his wife, his sweetheart that he came back from the war and married, sitting through dinner with the tipsy husband. Invitations to clubs kept coming for him to speak, and now it seemed harmless to accept the free drinks that were always offered. At first, he drank just beer, then he, sipped, he dipped into hard liquor. If he got drunk enough, he could drown the war out for a time. He soon began drinking so much that he passed out, but he welcomed it, Passing out saved him from having to go to bed and wait for his monster, his monster being that sergeant in his dreams. Unable to talk him into giving it up, Cynthia stopped going out with him. He left her alone each night while he went out to lose the war. Rage, wild, random, and impossible to quell, began to consume him. And it talks about how it changed him and what a sweet guy he'd been, but now, like at the slightest provocation, he'd be, you know, beating people up. Well, it goes on in that manner for some time so that his whole life just becomes a shambles and finally his wife can't take it anymore. She tries for the longest time to help him in every way that she can, but she's not able to get through to him and tells him that she's going to divorce him. But before that happens, one day, that October, Cynthia, his wife, and Louis were walking down a hallway in their building when a new tenant and his girlfriend came out of an apartment. 
The two couples were chatting, and it was at first a pleasant conversation. Then the man mentioned that an evangelist named Billy Graham was preaching downtown. This is 1949. He was doing revival meetings in tents at this time, and very powerful at that time. Louie turned abruptly and walked away. <laughs> Cynthia stayed in the hall listening to the neighbor. When she returned to the apartment, she told Louie that she, want, she wanted him to take her to hear Graham speak. Louie refused. Cynthia went alone. She came home alight. She found Louie and told him that she wasn't going to divorce him. The news filled Louie with relief, but when Cynthia said that she'd experienced a religious awakening, he was appalled. <laughs> he wants no part of it. She tries to get him to, to go. Um, she convinces, she basically tricks him into going. She days, this, this meeting, this, you know, his uh, crusade, as he would call them, would go on for days. And this one was extended. It, became, it started off a small group that kept growing. It's one of the most famous things in Billy Graham's life. And for days she's pestering him, and he won't go. And then she finally kind of tricks him into going by telling him that he's going to be talking about science and the Bible. And he wasn't. But she knew that Louis was interested in that, so she gets him to go. And then the message only offends him and angers him, and he ducks out of there the first chance he gets. So she keeps trying. Louis from his night, rose from his nightmares to find Cynthia there. All morning Sunday, she tried to coax him into seeing Graham again. Louis, angry and threatened, refused. For several hours, Cynthia and Louis argued. Exhausted by her persistence, <laughs> Louis finally agreed to go with one caveat. When Graham said every head bowed, every eye closed, they were leaving. <laughs> so he goes there, and Graham preaches, and then he gets to this point where he, you know, does this and, and has what they call an altar call. You know, some of you are familiar with that. Not something we do, but. Um, so this is that point. Louis shone with sweat. He felt accused, cornered, pressed by a frantic urge to flee. As Graham asked for heads to bow and eyes to close, Louis stood abruptly and rushed for the street, towing Cynthia behind him. <laughs> Nobody leaving, said Graham. You can leave while I'm preaching, but not now. Everybody is still in quiet. Every head bowed, every eye closed. He asked the faithful to come forward. Louis pushed past the congregation in his row, charging for the exit. His mind was tumbling. He felt enraged, violent, on the edge of explosion. He wanted to hit someone. As he reached the aisle, he stopped. Cynthia, the rows of bowed heads, the sawdust underfoot, the tent all around him, all disappeared. A memory long beaten back. The memory from which he had run the evening before was upon him. 
Louis was on the raft. There was gentle Phil crumpled up before him, Max breathing skeleton, endless ocean stretching away in every direction. The sun lying over them, the cunning bodies of the sharks waiting, circling. He was a body on a raft, dying of thirst. He felt words whisper from his swollen lips. It was a promise thrown at heaven, a promise he had not kept, a promise he had allowed himself to forget until just this instant. If you will save me, I will serve you forever. Yeah. And then... Standing on a circus tent on a clear night in downtown Los Angeles, Louis felt rain falling. It was the last flashback he would ever have. Louis let go of Cynthia and turned toward Graham. He felt supremely alive. He began walking. This is it, said Graham. God has spoken to you. You come on. Cynthia kept her eyes on Louis all the way home. When they entered the apartment, Louis went straight to his cache of liquor. It was, the first, it, was, it was the time of night when the need usually took hold of him, but for the first time in years, Louis had no desire to drink. He carried the bottles to the kitchen sink, opened them, and poured their contents into the drain. Then he hurried through the apartment, gathering packs of cigarettes, a secret stash of girly magazines, everything that was part of his ruined years. He heaved it all down the trash chute. In the morning, he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, the bird hadn't come to his dreams. The bird would never come again. Louis dug out the Bible that had been issued to him by the Air Corps and mailed home to his mother when, he believed, he was, when, when believed he was dead. At some point, they thought he was dead there. His, parent, his family had been told he was dead. He walked in Barnsdale Park where he and Cynthia had gone in better days and where Cynthia had gone alone when he'd been on benders. He found a spot under a tree, sat down, and began reading. Resting in the shade and the stillness, Louis felt profound peace. While he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make of him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. Softly, he wept. He had been broken. Why I don't like the movie is because it ends, before, it ends with him getting rescued from the Japanese. Saying that, that he had been unbroken by them, but he had been broken. And he remained broken until Christ came into his life. And then Christ saved him to the uttermost. Luke chapter 4. Because that's what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to save mankind. In Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of Jesus Christ's ministry, he proclaims just that in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. 
And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Jesus Christ came to fulfill that scripture from the book of Isaiah. And he began to do that on that day. But that day was not the only day, nor that time when he traveled the earth and his earthly ministry that he carried out that mission. He carried it out to someone like Louis Zamperini, who was as broken a man as anyone could be. And Louis's life was forever changed. From that day forward, Louis was a changed man. He dedicated his life to Christ. All of those nightmares were gone. All of that psychological scarring was gone. All of that damage in his life was gone. And he lived for Christ, and he served him, starting the forerunner of what a couple of you know as lead. <laughs> he was the first to have an outdoor wilderness experience based on the Bible to teach people the application of those principles. And he gave us testimony many, many times and changed the lives of thousands of people. We saw in Luke chapter 4, Jesus Christ proclaiming what he was there to do. You know, looking at the life of that man, Louis Zamperini, you may think, well, it's great that... He He's so changed. It's great that his life got so healed. And praise God, my life wasn't in such shambles. But if you stop and you really think about it, Jesus Christ came to heal the brokenhearted. Have you ever had a broken heart? Yes. And if you have, you know how badly that hurts. And if, you know, some, for some people... They never get over it. And some people carry that hurt in one way or another for a long time, maybe a lifetime. But Jesus Christ came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to preach deliverance to the captives. Of course, Louis had been physically a captive. He had been physically a captive in a prisoner of war camp. But you know, the captivity that he suffered afterwards was more tormenting than the captivity that he had endured while he was there, because that just continued to ruin him. It's like the study um, released from your prisons. The most wretched kinds of prisons are not the ones of bars and steel, but the ones we have in our minds. People are held captive in their minds. They're held captive to a lot of things. They may be held captive to fear. They may be held captive to guilt or to condemnation. They may be held captive to addiction. They may be held captive to the misery of this world. But whatever captivity anybody is held to, 
Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. He came to bring recovering of sight to the blind. And he did that at the time, and people have experienced that even in present-day time, people that were physically blind being healed. But many that were never physically blind have received recovering of their spiritual blindness. Many that never were physically blind know that they've gone through life not seeing clearly. And Jesus Christ brought recovering of the sight to those that are blind. And to set at liberty them that are bruised. And that word bruised is the one word that I'll point out that 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 is not a strong enough translation. The word bruised means broken. It's not just bruised. a lot of difference between a bruise. (laughs) Oh, I just, uh, you hurt your ankle? I just bruised it. (laughs) Hurt your ankle? I broke it. Broken in five places. Louis had been a broken man. He wasn't just bruised. He was broken. But many people that have never experienced what he experienced through life have been broken. Some of it perhaps self-inflicted, others by no choice of their own, by no decisions of their own or things that they did, but they are broken. And they go through life as broken people. But Jesus Christ is our Savior, one that is able to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to recover people's sights, to fix the broken. And it says he came to preach the acceptable of the year of the Lord. And all of this is a quote from Isaiah, and I'd like you to go there, Isaiah 61, where you can gain an even greater appreciation of what Jesus Christ read that day when you understand a bit of the context of it. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet to primarily Judea in the divided kingdom. And he was there to prophesy to them to come back to God because God's people, Judah, had turned their backs on him. For just generations, they had followed idolatry. For generations, they had turned away from God. And Isaiah is there calling them back. And a last-ditch effort here, telling them that if they don't come back to God, they will be taken into literal physical captivity. That they will be taken captive by the Babylonians. And there he is telling them about that, and telling them that they have a choice. They can either continue in the way they're going, or they can turn to God, and that he will set them free. And that's the context in verse 1 of of Isaiah 61. Here, where Isaiah is saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. It had been translated poor in the Gospels. And it's any kind of lack, but it's here translated meek because that lack can be a lack of knowledge of God's word that can set you free. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, Jesus Christ stopped before getting into that part because that day was not being fulfilled 
That scripture was not being fulfilled that day in their ears. That's still future. The day of vengeance of our God refers to the Lord's day after Jesus Christ's return when the events of the book of Revelation take place, the Antichrist, some of the stuff that you may know a little bit about, maybe you don't, we'll cover some other day. But that was not the day when Jesus Christ was reading. Isaiah is prophesying. And the book of Isaiah is prophecies. Some of it is directly to the people at that time. Much of it is prophecies that were to be fulfilled in the future, many of which still have not been fulfilled, that won't happen until after Jesus Christ returns. Because you know what's amazing is, although Isaiah is prophesying to Judah, and although Judah had turned away from God, and although, you know, there's moments here in Hezekiah, we covered him a couple of weeks ago, he's a contemporary of this time, and at that point he walks with God and they're doing good. But nonetheless, Israel does not ever really hearken, and they do take get, get taken into captivity. And yet, God is so gracious that he tells them even then, knowing full well that they won't listen, knowing full well that, Isaiah, you're just wasting your breath here in terms of these folks, knowing full well that they will turn their back on him, he tells them that the day is coming when no matter what they do, he's still going to fulfill all of these promises to them and they will be brought back to him. Look at verse 3. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old waste, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. It's not talking about illegal immigrants or you know, people from other planets, the aliens being the foreigners would come and be working for them. Skip down to verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. Clothed me with the garments of salvation. He would save me in that way. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's our covering. Righteousness. The ability to stand in the presence of God any time without any sense of guilt, condemnation, shortcomings in any way. No matter what you do, you are righteous because of what Jesus Christ did. That's what he's saying. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God shall cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. This is the promise. And Israel, <clears throat> Israel had been so far out, but the promise is that all of these things can be for them. 
in Isaiah chapter 1, in the opening of the book of Isaiah. In verse 18, he says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You can never be so far out, so far strayed, that the loving hands and arms of God are not underneath you to support you. God is there. God is there to call his people back to him. And it doesn't matter what you've ever done. It doesn't even matter what you'll do. It doesn't matter how far or how you know, little you've come so far in your walk with God. God is there for you. And his son, Jesus Christ, is our Savior. He is our Savior who saved us when we were not able to do anything for ourselves, when we're dead in trespasses and sins, and our Savior who continues to be a living Savior to us now. We needed a Savior. Turn to Romans chapter 3. We didn't deserve it. And if you take an honest look at your life, you'll recognize that. We didn't deserve what God did for us. In fact, we deserved the opposite of a Savior. By our, who we were by nature, we were deserving of death. In Romans 3, verse 10, it talks about the nature of man. You know, you may not have gone through all the bad behavior of a Louis or others, but nonetheless, in one way or the other, this is the nature of man. Romans 3, 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open, open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall there no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For everybody but me has sinned. <laughs> for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. Some know that as payment. It's more accurately appeasement. Through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his. Who is the his referring to? Jesus Christ. 
that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. We have been justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. We've been justified. Justified means you were put in trial and found not guilty. That's what it is. Everything you ever did wrong, all of your faults, all of your failures, all of your shortcomings. If you want to feel guilty, well, because you were. But when it came time to pronounce the verdict, you know what you were proclaimed? Not guilty. Why? Because Jesus Christ stepped up and said, I'll pay the price for that. I'll pay the price for it. He saved us. He saved us. He saved us. He saved us from ourselves, from our faults, from our failures, from our shortcomings. He saved us from our fears. He saved us from our sickness. He saved us from the disappointing misery of this world. He saved us from the power of the enemy, the adversary, Satan. He saved us from all of the terrible things in this world, the death, the destruction, everything that holds men captive. He's mended our broken hearts and healed our lives and our souls. And he has set at liberty our broken lives and given us the victory for now and all of eternity. We needed a Savior. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. We needed a Savior because we were incapable of doing anything to really save ourselves. When you look at it from a spiritual standpoint, and many of us realized it from any standpoint whatsoever. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, And you hath he quickened or made alive who were what? Dead. Dead. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We need a Savior. Why? Because we were dead. Can you do anything to help yourself when you're dead? No. Can you improve your situation when you're dead? No. No, because you're dead. Okay? Not a lot you can do to help yourself when you're dead. You know? People say, well, I've got to improve my situation in life. How can you? You're dead. You're dead. That's where we were. We were dead. We were dead. And there's nothing that we could do to help ourselves. Can you improve the situation of a dead guy? No. no. Not much help. You know? Well, let me give you a better place to live. Not going to help much. You're dead. <laughs> let me take you to the doctor. Not going to help. He's dead. Nothing that can be done. Can you reform a dead man? No. Can you get him to be better? No. no, because he's dead. We were dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in his mercy, for, with, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened or made us alive together with Christ. By grace ye are what? Saved. saved. By grace you are saved. By God's grace. By God's grace. Grace means undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. We didn't deserve it, but God so loved, and by the riches of his grace he saved us. 
go to Philippians chapter 3. When the reality of what Jesus Christ did for you hits you, it will change your life. At whatever point that happens, it will change your life, the reality. For Louis, it was that night. Boom. He hit it, heard it, and it changed his life. And there's other people I've read, their stories. George Foreman, um, Pete Maravich, Pistol Pete, Nikki Cruz, many books that I've read where they had that kind of, boom, life-changing experience as soon as they heard the word. And it just changed them. When I heard the word, um, I loved it. I'll say it did change me, but not as fully as it should have. It wasn't at that time that I really understood enough of who I was. But when you do, man, it really will change your life. You know, it was not until about over a year, well over a year after I first started coming to fellowships that it really hit me. And the reason why was because, although I'd heard the truth, for the longest time, I only kind of mentally assented to it, you know. Didn't really believe it. And, oh, I was excited, and I was telling other people, and running around, and sharing the word, witnessing to them, and running classes, and doing all this stuff. But I'd been, in my mind, so busy trying to give the more than abundant life to others, I never stopped and got it myself. And so, when some things went off track, when things happened in my life, I really went off the rails. And after my first year in college, I was just a basket case. I really was. I was just a mental wreck. And I, if there's any time when I could have just quit and walked away, it would have been that moment. The only thing that kept me from doing it was I was honest enough with myself to know that I had never really applied the principles of the word. I had never really renewed my mind. And I knew that if I walked away then, I'd never know if it really worked. And I'd always wonder. So I began to really apply those principles of renewing my mind, studying the word, controlling my thinking, all these different principles. And you know what happened? I felt worse. <laughs> I felt worse. Isn't that strange? I felt worse because you know what happens oftentimes when you start to really put the light of God's word in? Light makes manifest darkness. And those things in my life were, that were dark that I never recognized, I never realized, all of a sudden were just glaring to me. You know? You get, it's like our illustration, you have all this dirty water, you pour the clean water in and this stuff rises. And, You'll pardon a crude expression, the crap floats to the surface. There's a lot of crap in my life, you know. There's a lot of crap in everybody's life. Some won't be honest about it, but all men are full of crap. <laughs> and if that seems crude, I'm going to show you that I'm not the only one that says this. Go to Philippians chapter 3. The thing that overpowered me, the thing that really had me down, was the fact that I had broken a commitment. That's what I realized. <clears throat> My first year in college, I was part of a program called the College Wow Ambassador Program, and there was a commitment involved in this. 
it was a commitment to do certain things, move the word, and there were certain things about it that I, I did. And moving the word, yes. And other things, some of it I didn't really do. But the thing that really hit me was it was supposed to be a year-long commitment. And at the end of that academic year, I was given the opportunity by our limb leader, Reverend Earl Burton, to go out on a program, me and somebody else, to tour the state as rovers helping others that were in this program moving the word. And we were given the opportunity to do that, and I declined. I said, no, I don't think so. i got other things I want to do. Now, that might not seem to be that big a deal to you. It didn't at the time to me. But when I began to really understand and appreciate that I'd broken a commitment, it really did hit me because if you make a commitment, if you make a vow, God says it's better that you never make it than you break it. Commitment is a big deal. If you make a commitment to God, whether it's to do a program like that, marriage, raise your kids and as believers, all of those things are commitments to God, and boy, you should never break it. And I felt horrible. I felt condemned. And I went to God and told him I'm sorry, wrote a letter to the man who you know, had asked me and I broke the commitment to. But that wasn't enough. I had to build the word in my mind about who I was in Christ to overcome that. And I did. And it wasn't a matter of a day, a week, a month. It was some years before that completely happened. I began to feel a lot better shortly because I concentrated on really building those truths in my life. Hours, just spend hours just reading. You know, it was sweet. I'd have my little candle and I'd have my, you know. And I just enjoyed reading the Word because I loved it. I loved it. And I didn't do it because thou shalt study the Word. Thou shalt read the Word. I did it because I was hungry. I did it because I loved my Savior as I learned about Him. And I wanted to understand what He meant to me because that wasn't a reality. I knew of Him, but I didn't really know Him. And man, when you get to that point, that's what it talks about in Philippians 3. Paul talks about his background, but we'll pick it up in verse 7. After talking about all of his credentials and all the things at one time he thought made him important and special, in verse 7 it says, But what things were gained to me, those things that I considered important, those I counted lost for Christ. To me, those were nothing. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but See, I told you I wasn't the only one that said that. <laughs> that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him. And that word know is to know by experience. Not just know of him because like, oh, I read about him, you know. But know by experience. I was in Belize <clears throat> some years back, and <clears throat> I was in a little, one of those like six, seven-seater airplanes flying from the mainland to the island, and I got to sit in the co-pilot seat right next to the pilot. It was really cool. Great way to fly. Really fun. 
And, you know, I watched the pilot the whole time. And I saw everything he did. So then when we landed, I said, well, I think I'm ready to take over. <laughs> and he said, that's great, no problem. Uh, just leave me here, though. Let me stay here. I, I may have seen what he did, you know, but that doesn't mean I really knew how to fly, right? Right, right. To know by experience takes some doing. It takes some doing. It takes not just reading, not just knowing it, have a mental picture, but getting to the point where you understand it, where you, you internalize that truth, first of all. Where you read the doctrine, and you stop, and you ponder, and consider deeply, what does this mean to me? How does that affect me? What should I be doing in light of this? How should that change who I am and how I act? These are the things I pondered. And when I understood that righteousness, then it changed my life. I no longer felt condemned because I knew that it wasn't in what I did, but what Jesus Christ did for me. And honestly, and I seldom say this because it sounds like bragging, but I've never condemned myself since. I have no, I have no guilt. Doesn't mean I don't do anything wrong, that's for sure. <laughs> and saying I have no guilt doesn't mean that I never feel sorry. I, my goodness, I feel sorry six times a day. And I go to God and tell him I'm sorry, but I don't waste time beating myself up, and I never feel like I am terrible. I may feel like I just did something really bad, but it doesn't mean I am bad because of what Jesus Christ made me. There's the difference. Guilt and condemnation are gone when you know who he is and who Jesus Christ, what he saved you from, the righteousness is ours. And you know what else is gone? The flip side of that self-righteous coin Pride. Because both are the same, the two sides of the same coin, and the coin's called self-righteousness. So when the fella is living up to his own self-righteous standard, boy, look at me. <laughs> Aren't I great? Look what I just did. Aren't I wonderful? And when he falls short, oh, no, I'm just a miserable bum. <laughs> but neither one are true. Anything that's good in me is because of what he made me. It says that in the flesh dwelleth no good thing. No good thing. Nothing good. In the flesh is nothing good because that flesh is the old man, and that old man is dead. He's dead. We are in the flesh is no good thing. You can see that. You can turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter, no, Romans Chapter 7, verse 18. It says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. In that flesh, because that flesh is just dead in trespasses and sins. You know, we have <clears throat> um, a very famous cemetery here in town called Fort Hill Cemetery. There's some very famous people that are buried there. William Henry Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State, you know, that purchased Alaska, he's buried there. Harriet Tubman, the famous leader of the Underground Railroad, conductor on the Underground Railroad, she's buried there. Um, there's a fellow named Miles Kehoe, this great race we're doing, 
You know, he was a, a soldier in the Union Army that died at the Little Bighorn. He's buried there. Some big Indian chief that was chief over the six tribes of the Iroquois, he's buried there. Now, let me tell you, which of those fellows right now is doing the best? <laughs> Who's better than somebody else there now? Nobody. Who's, you know, better off? Because why? They're, They're all dead. They're all dead. Would you like to see which one looks better? No. 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 <laughs> because that dead corpse doesn't look too good, does it? No, it's dead. So when it comes to our old man that's dead, does mine look better than yours? No. Does yours look better than mine? If I look at that, you know what I'm going to see? A dead corpse, and that's, it's gross. You know, when I look at the old man, when I look at the flesh, that's disgusting. That's just, that's disgusting. That's gross. And you know what else? Occasionally, you might see it, and I, you probably will not like it either. We see from time to time that old man, that flesh of each other, and it's never pretty. Now, it doesn't mean you ain't pretty. doesn't mean that your face isn't pretty, but that old man, that flesh, that part that, that is that nature that we read about in Romans 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All the faults, all that stuff that by nature is just yuck, all of that's not pretty. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, Wherefore, verse 16, it says, Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We're not to know anyone after the flesh. When you see the old man, you know what you do? You don't look at that. You don't focus on that. Not whether it's yourself or somebody else. We're not to know each other after the flesh. We're to focus on the Christ in us, that new creature, what God made us to be. We're to focus with ourselves in that way and on one another. And knowing that, again, everything good is because of what Christ made us. And knowing that we can continue to go to that living Savior who is still there to make intercession for us to strengthen us and to help us at the times that we need it. God bless. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.